Well, I want to welcome you to week three of this series called Follow Me, where we've been looking at those two words that Jesus said to many, many people 2,000 years ago as an invitation to follow after him. And uh, one of the things that we have been doing in this series is taking a look at what would it actually look like to follow Jesus? Like if we lived 2,000 years ago, what in the world would we have been doing if we were following Jesus? What would Jesus have been doing? And therefore, what would we have been doing as his disciples? And last week, we talked about one of the core habits that Jesus had was to pray. He did this very often. His disciples surely would have been doing this as well. And today we're going to look at another habit of Jesus, and that is that Jesus was very into community. Jesus was constantly in community. And um, most of us actually know this inherently, whether you're a churchgoer or not. Um, you know that it wasn't just Jesus who had this ministry and had this life, but Jesus had these 12 disciples who went with him everywhere he went and shared in his ministry. And ultimately, when he died and then was raised from the dead, they were the ones that carried the movement forward primarily. And so we know about these disciples and we've heard about these 12 guys, but, but here's the thing. What did that group, because Jesus like, hey, had a huddle with these guys. What did that huddle look like? like what, what were their personalities like? What were, what were the dynamics like? What was community like if you were in Jesus' community group? And uh, the reason that I think this will be worth taking a look at is because if Jesus is essentially giving us a model for what community should be like, wouldn't it help for us to pay attention to that? And as a church, to look at how can we emulate that? How can we replicate that sort of community, the community that, that Christ had? How can we have that? We do something at Grace called community groups. And um, are we living that out? Or are they looking like what Jesus' community group look like? So we're going to take a deep dive. We're going to take an in-depth look at Jesus' group of 12. Um, there's several places where these 12 are mentioned. Uh, one of them is from a physician named Luke who wrote an account of Jesus' life. The sixth chapter, starting in the 12th verse, is where we pick it up this morning. Luke writes, uh, One of those days, Jesus went out on a mountainside to pray. We talked about that was one of his core habits. And spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he designated apostles. Now, some of you are like, Wait, I thought he only had 12 uh, disciples. Well, actually, he had a lot more than 12. He invited tons of people to come and follow after him and be disciples. But um, he selected from all those many disciples, he selected 12 that would really become his most trusted. He called them apostles. And apostles means messenger or ambassador. So these were basically like the spokesmen for Christ. This was, this was the inner circle of 12. They would be a part of pretty much everything Jesus did in his ministry. And so um, then we get the list. And what's important to know about the list, and you'll see this oftentimes when you're reading your Bible, is that back then the order really matters. So most of the time, you see the order starts with, with the utmost important, and it goes down to the least. And that's very much the case here. So we see the list. We're going to go through these one by one. The first apostle or disciple was named Simon, who Jesus named 
Peter. Peter was Jesus' nickname for Simon, means rock. And um, Simon was the leader of the 12. Most of us have heard about him because he would speak oftentimes on behalf of the disciples. And man, he was good at speaking. I mean, Peter was always running his mouth. He was bold. He was outspoken. He was, he was one of those people, I don't know if you have someone like this in your life, but he was an act first, think second kind of guy. Um, don't raise your hand, okay, if you have someone right next to you right now, you know somebody, okay, just, just look at me, just stay focused on me. But um, I read one writer said that he was the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth. I thought that, was, thought that was pretty good. That was Peter. Peter was constantly acting in the moment, often impulsively, out of instinct. He would say things, and Jesus would just, oh man, it, this was just, Peter, are you serious? And we see one of those times, um, Jesus is explaining to his disciples in a very serious moment. He's explaining to them, look, this stuff, all these miracles and teachings and, and all this stuff I've been doing, this is great, but ultimately, I'm going to have to suffer and die for the sins and the evil of the world, and that's actually how humanity's going to be made right with God. And he's explaining this, and Peter just, you know, boom. He just says, no, no, Jesus, no, that's not how it's going to be. And so this is what Jesus says, Okay. Matthew chapter 16, verse 23, records it. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now, if Jesus ever says to you, get behind me, Satan, okay? Jesus ever calls you Satan, you know that's, you did something very wrong, okay? It's a bad day for you. It's a bad moment in your life, okay? And this was happening to Peter on several accounts. Very bold, very outspoken. I don't know about you, but I think this is an interesting choice by Jesus to, to be the leader and the spokesman. Um, th- th- I think I would have been irritated many times by Peter. Just, that's just me and my personality. I don't know about you. Um, let's continue on. So uh, Peter had a brother named Andrew. And uh, unlike Peter, who always had something to say, Andrew we see very, very quiet. He's one of the most prominent disciples in terms of order of importance, but he uh, rarely said anything. And the times that he did, notice this, whereas Peter was constantly saying the wrong thing, Andrew was always saying the right thing. Every time that Andrew speaks, he's saying the right thing. Andrew is very much a people person. One of the things about Andrew that's interesting is Andrew is the one who would introduce people to Jesus, meaning that if you wanted to see Jesus, Andrew was like the guy who would bring you to Jesus and make that handoff and make that happen. Andrew's actually the one who introduced his brother Peter to Jesus. Andrew's the one that um, brings the boy with the fish, fishes and the loaves uh, for the, the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. He brings that boy to Jesus. And, um, and then there's another time where some, some uh, non-Jewish Greeks come and they want to meet Jesus. And they, they talk to Philip, I believe it was. And Philip's like, hold on, let me go get Andrew. <laughs> and we will, we will go and we will take you to Jesus. So we've got this bold, outspoken brother. And then we've got the, the, the quieter one who seems to be really just a great people person having this close relationship with Jesus. Both of these guys were fishermen. In Galilee, there were two others who were also fishermen, James and John, the third and fourth disciples mentioned. James and John were also brothers, the same way that Peter and Andrew were. And um, James and John, it looks like, most likely, that they were the most well-to-do of all the disciples. 
because we see in Mark's gospel account in chapter 1, verse 20, that um, James and John, when they go to follow Jesus, it says, gives this little snippet of information. It says that they left their father and his hired men. So it appears that they left a whole fishing enterprise or a fishing business to go and follow Jesus. And James and John, Jesus actually nicknamed them the sons of thunder. These were two rugged, thunderous, passionate men. One of the most famous things about them is um, that there was this time when Jesus was going to be traveling through Samaria. And Samaria, Samaritans and, and Jewish people didn't get along all that well. So he, Jesus sent out a couple of people ahead to just let the Samaritans know that they were going to be coming through. And they weren't all that warmly received. And so James and John, the sons of thunder, this is what they said. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, this is in Luke 9, 54 and 55, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? I think the nickname fits right there, okay? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. So very fiery, very rugged, these passionate personalities. And that could very well have been what, what, hap- what led James to actually be the first of the 12 disciples to be killed for his faith. We see in the book of Acts chapter 12, verse 2, that he's the first one to be martyred for his faith in Jesus Christ. Now, um, we know a lot more about John than we do James, quite frankly, because John wrote um, several books of the New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of John, and he wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. And we see that in, in those writings, uh, we see that there is something that he's constantly hammering on. Is this theme of God's love for us and then our call to love others. In fact, John has come to be known as the Apostle of love. So while he had this thunderous, fiery personality to him, um, Jesus very much impacted him in terms of learning to live out a message of love. So these four guys were, were the innermost of the inner circle. Uh, two sets of brothers, they, um, they often were going off with Jesus, just the four of them. We see a number of times in scripture where it's either four or three of those four that Jesus would ask to come with him and do something. So, um, so just take note of that. That's an interesting dynamic. Uh, the next one is Philip. Now, Philip was a detail guy. He's a logistics person, very practical. Um, at one point in that feeding of the 5,000, there's a dialogue going on between Philip and Jesus where uh, they're talking about how many people there are and, and the fact that everybody's hungry. And it says that Philip said to Jesus, this is John 6, 7, he said it would take more than a half year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. So he's like running numbers and spreadsheets in his head. You got to love this guy. Some of you are like, yeah, that's my guy right there. Um, we also see uh, Jesus having a conversation with his disciples where um, He's explaining to them, and he's explained this numerous times, but he's explained to them, look, if your heavenly father, okay, if you want to see your heavenly father, just look at me. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. You've seen me, you've seen the father. Like, I am God in human form. That's, that's what Jesus was explaining to them. And I just love Philip. He's so practical. He's so pragmatic. He hears Jesus say that, and he goes, okay. Uh, John 14, 8 records it. Philip said, so Lord, uh, show us the father, and that'll be enough for us. Okay, just come on, like let's. Do, I just practically let let me let me see that he was probably like the logistics and organizational guy among the disciples. That's my guess, anyway. 
Next up, we have Bartholomew, who was also known as Nathaniel, depending on which gospel writer was recording some of these things. Um, and um, we see something interesting here that, that he says when he's first introduced to Jesus. So he hears that Jesus is from Nazareth. Now, he was from the region of Galilee, which, you know, so he's very familiar with Nazareth. And basically the same, he's from the same socioeconomic class as folks from Nazareth. But check out what it says. He says, um, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? He asked. So he, it, this actually betrays a deep prejudice that he had. And, and so it's, it's very interesting. That's, I'm guessing that this was something that he and Jesus probably talked about. What, what is the deal? Why do, you, why do you hate these people from this town? What do you have against them? There's some sort of an underlying prejudice that was going on there. The other thing that we know about Bartholomew slash Nathaniel is that he was a, a man of great faith. He came to faith very quickly. In fact, of all the disciples, he was really the first one to make such a bold declaration. This is where the first time he meets Jesus. Just a couple of verses after he made the, that statement about Nazareth, Jesus says some stuff to him, and all of a sudden, it's like his eyes are open, and it says, then he declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. This is a man very quick to come to faith. Next, we have a famous one. We talked about him two weeks ago. Matthew, the tax collector. Now, for those who missed that sermon two weeks ago, all you need to know is that as a Jewish man, a tax collector, someone collecting taxes for the Romans who occupied Israel, this was a very, very bad deal, okay? Tax collectors were the most hated, the most despised people in Israel. And they were kind of seen as like mafia lords, many of them, because they would do whatever it took to get the money that they were supposed to get. Uh, it, was just, it was just a bad, bad scene. So he very much, Matthew would have been a loner and would not have been liked among his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. Next, we have Thomas, who's better known by his nickname, which is? Yeah, Doubting Thomas. Um, he was the famous skeptic that when the other disciples had seen Jesus and Thomas was out doing something else, we don't know what he was doing, and he met up with them later. They said, you know, we've seen the Lord. This is from John's Gospel 2025. Um, it says, then Thomas said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I love Thomas here because he's so real. Maybe it's because I'm kind of a skeptical person as well. I ask a lot of questions. I want the proof, you know, show me, show me. Um, but you know, th that's Thomas, very much a doubter. Uh, but the other thing that's interesting about Thomas, he doesn't seem to be the most optimistic type of person. Uh, we see in, in John's gospel, uh, chapter 11, verse 16, Jesus is announcing, hey guys, time to go to Jerusalem. Okay, Jerusalem's where everybody's gunning for Jesus. It's where the religious leaders were. There were threats on Jesus' life. He's like, come on, we're going to Jerusalem, guys. And this is what Thomas said. Thomas stands up and gives a little pep talk. He says, it says, then Thomas, incidentally, also known as Didymus, which means twin. So we're gathering that he, has, he had a twin brother or sister, though we, that person is never mentioned in scripture. Um, but he said to the rest of the disciples, here we go, here's the pep talk. Let us also go, that we may die with him. I mean, he's like least likely candidate to be a motivational speaker among the group, I think. Um, so you got Thomas, and then you have another James, 
James is a very common name back in those times. James, son of Alphaeus. Now, he's also recorded in Scripture to be known as James the Younger. At least that's how um, one translation has it. The Greek word there for younger is the word mikros, M-I-K-R-O-S, which literally means small. So he's known as James the Younger or James the Less. And here's the deal. It's a little bit of speculation on him because, man, there's just not a lot of information on him. But it was very likely that if nothing else, he was younger than, uh, than James, son of, son of thunder. But less can also mean stature, so it could have been that he was smaller in size physically. And less also has to do with influence. So there's a good chance, uh, and given the fact that really um, he doesn't get any airtime in the Bible, um, he had a lot less influence in terms of his role among the twelve. Next, we have Simon the Zealot. Now, what you need to know about Zealots, the Zealots were those who were so, they loved the nation of Israel. They were so passionate about, um, about their faith and about what God had done through this group of people that they were willing to go to any means necessary to overthrow the Roman occupation. They weren't satisfied with what many of the religious leaders were in that day, which is, okay, we have to pay taxes to the Romans. Yeah, there's Roman soldiers around, but they let us worship freely. They let us practice our faith freely. The zealots were like, no, 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 no. That's an offense to God. That is absolutely an offense to God. They must be thrown out. This is the nation of Israel. It must be restored to greatness. And I just want to tell you, and this is maybe a little hard to hear because it hits a little too close to home with a lot of the violence that's been happening today, but many of these zealots were violent extremists. They were. And they would actually commit acts of terror because they, they weren't like a whole mobilized movement, but they would just like, they would pick off Roman soldiers. They would assassinate them. They would do things, anything they could to try and in their minds advance this agenda of trying to overthrow Roman rule, which made them hated by many of their people because what, what do you think Rome would do when their, their guards and their soldiers started to get executed like that? It was just much worse for the nation of Israel. So very interesting with the tax collector and the zealot there who would have been at opposite ends of the spectrum. Then you've got Judas, not Judas Iscariot, Judas son of James. In fact, the gospel writer John at one point, as he's talking about this guy, this other Judas, actually says, this is hilarious. He goes, Judas, then Judas, not Judas Iscariot said, how'd you like to be referred that way? Not the, not the bad guy, the other one, the other Judas. So, um, he, he had a couple of nicknames. We find them in the Gospel of Matthew 10, verse 3. We're going back to the old King James version, for those of you who are fans. Any King James fans out there? Man, okay. Don't want to admit it anyway. All right. Um, but he had two other names, Levius and his surname Thaddeus. Now, what's interesting about this is that Thaddeus literally means breast child, which has the connotation of a nursing baby. And Levius literally means heart child. So here you have this guy who as now as a grown man is still being referred to by these names, which we can only gather has something to do with his tender childlike manner or his childlike heart. And then finally, you have the infamous Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and then realized the implications of what he'd done and he hung himself. So just think about this for a minute, okay? Group dynamics. 
okay, of these 12 plus Jesus. You have the foot-in-mouth Peter, never shy for a word. And then you have John, who was also in the inner circle, who almost never speaks. In fact, in the book of Acts, the history of the early church, first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, Peter and John, they're going everywhere together. Peter is always running his mouth. John never says one word, 12 chapters. That's crazy. You've got the faithful Bartholomew slash Nathaniel, very quick to faith. And then you've got Thomas, the hardened skeptic. I need proof positive. Show me. You've got Matthew, the traitor to his own people, despised by his people. And then you've got Simon, the zealot, who was so fired up about his own people. Can you imagine what they thought of one another? That's crazy. Those two guys certainly would have been prime candidates to be the loners of the group. And what's wild to think about to me is you've got these two loners, and then you've got two sets of brothers who were all fishermen from the same town who were the closest four to Jesus, almost like a little clique. How does that all work? Then you've got the sons of thunder wanting to rain fire down from heaven, and you've got the tender, childlike other Judas. I wonder what he would have had to say in that moment. And then to top it all off, you've got the one who betrayed Jesus. How long were there whispers and suspicions about what he was going to do or thoughts of what was going to happen there? So this is Jesus' huddle. This is his community group, you guys. Isn't that wild? A couple other facts that you might find interesting about the, the 12 disciples. All but one of them were from the same region, Galilee. It was only Judas Iscariot who wasn't from there. Galilee was a lower-class, rural place. Jesus did not select one religious leader among the 12. Not one priest, not one rabbi, no formal theological education. These were unschooled, untrained, common men. We believe that seven of the 12 were fishermen. Now, these guys as a whole, they had some struggles. They had some difficulties. And I just want to tell you, if you're here this morning and maybe you know, your, your faith is a bit of a struggle. Maybe at times you're just, man, you beat yourself up or you get frustrated or discouraged. This, this could be um, a, an encouragement for you because let me tell you, Jesus' community group, his huddle, man, they struggled with some stuff. So the first thing they really struggled with was understanding. Jesus would speak in parables and stories and he'd get finished telling a parable and everyone would be like, oh, they'd be amazed. And the crowd's like gasping. Wow, it's so incredible. And then Jesus would walk off and the disciples would all run after him and they'd go, hey, Jesus, 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 what the heck did that mean, man? They, they had no earthly idea what he was saying, what's the main point. But it wasn't just the stories and the parables. It was Jesus' plans. It was his mission. It was how things were gonna go down and what that meant. They were constantly struggling to understand uh, Jesus is recorded one time saying, are you still so dull? I mean, he just, you can see and sense the, the, the frustration there with these 12. They lacked humility. In fact, um, we see an argument breaking out among the 12. They're arguing who is the greatest of the 12 disciples. I love this. It's just so real, isn't it? I mean, you're, you're going around with Jesus, man. He's like a rock star. I mean, at what point is your own ego going to get wrapped up in there? They, they struggled with this. Man, Jesus gave a huge object lesson we're going to lesson we're going to revisit in a couple of weeks. Actually, that topic. Um, the other thing that they lacked was faith. 
And this was probably one of the biggest ones. And it's just a huge encouragement to me when I struggle in my faith. Because these guys are constantly freaking out, overreacting. Um, They're just, they're lacking faith. And in Matthew's gospel alone, there are four times where Jesus is quoted addressing his disciples saying, you of little faith, you of little faith. Come on, guys, come on, have some faith here. So they lacked understanding, they lacked humility, and they lacked faith. But they did have one thing. They had Jesus. Pretty good trump card. And what they had was that they were willing to follow this man named Jesus. We talked two weeks ago about this. You don't actually need to believe to start following Jesus. You don't need to behave like Jesus to start following Jesus. But you do need one thing. You need a need. There needs to be some part of you that is in touch with some sort of a need or a longing or something. For many of these disciples, it was, it was merely, hey, there's something about this Jesus guy. I want to follow him. And that is ultimately what they did. They were willing to follow Jesus. They were willing to put their faith in Jesus. And ultimately, this didn't just help this little group to get along and not kill each other. But at the end of the day, once Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried, and raised, through his spirit in them, enabling them, this 12 basically catapulted a movement that now claims billions of people as followers of Jesus 2,000 years later. It's pretty amazing. But here's, here's the thing I've been thinking about that I want you to just have some fun thinking about in your mind right now. When you think about some sort of a church group gathering, okay, like some people call them small groups or community groups or Bible studies or like a men's group or a women's group or a prayer group, whatever it is, like a group of church people getting together to do church stuff. When you think about that group, does Jesus community group come to your mind? Like, do you think of all the crazy personalities and all the things that we're lacking and just the issues and the struggles and all that stuff? I mean, is that what comes to your mind when you think about a church group and the prospect of you, like, getting into a church group or being part of a church group? Is that what comes to your mind? Anybody who that's what comes to your mind? Basically just a total mess. Okay, there's a few. Okay, good. You've probably been a part of something really messy. Um, For the great majority of us, when we think about some sort of a church gathering, a religious group gathering, what do we think about? Oh man, okay, better try and look nice, make sure there's no stain on my shirt when I go, okay, because I want to look a little bit put together. And I'm probably going to bring a Bible or make sure I got like the Bible app downloaded from my phone so I don't look like a complete heathen to all of these religious people. And then I'm going to at least like, you know, knock the dust off of it. And, you know, and then I'm, and then I'm going to have at least a couple places to throw a bookmark in there and have a couple, maybe a verse or two that I might be able to quote or paraphrase or something. Uh, And and then if I had to pray, okay, warm up my prayers and think about what I might say, right? What you're trying to do is think, okay, I'm going into a holy huddle, going into a holy huddle, and I need to look a little bit holy in this setting. I think for the, most, for the majority of us, we would say that you kind of want to try and look spiritually somewhat put together. Is that fair to say? Okay. Nothing could be further from what Jesus' community group looked like. 
I just, I just want you to think about that for a minute because it's a really important point. Jesus' group was a mess. It was an absolute mess. But you know what was beautiful about it? It was real. This was authentic community. These guys spent 24-7 together. They, they, there was just, it was just absolutely real. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. There were doubts, there were struggles, there were issues, there were conflicts. There were all sorts of stuff going on. But it was a beautiful thing. It was an absolute beautiful thing because in the midst of all that, these guys were seeking to do one thing. Follow Jesus. His ways, his teachings, right? Now, I just want to let you know, whether you're brand new to Grace, you've been coming here for a while, whether you're in a group, currently one of our community groups, or you haven't gotten into one yet. I just want to let you know that what we see here with Jesus Community Group is what we seek to emulate at Grace Community Church. What we seek for these groups is to be real places for real people. Real places for real people. What that means is you can come in with your questions and your doubts. You can come in saying, you know, I don't necessarily believe all this. And no one's going to be like, what? I can't believe you just said that. Get out of here. It's a place where you won't be judged. You won't be condemned. You'll be welcomed in. Now, the common thread that binds us is we are all seeking to follow Jesus. We're at least intrigued with Jesus. We are in some way trying to move in the direction that Jesus is moving. Ultimately, the hope here is that we would come to faith in Jesus, that we would give our lives for Jesus and to serve him. But we're all at different stages of that journey. And so basically, these groups are real places for real people. We can be authentic, not just with our doubts and our questions, but with our struggles, with the the tough stuff of life. And these would be environments where we could encourage each other. And when someone says, you know, I'm struggling with this, that the group would be healthy enough and the leader would be fostering a good enough environment where other people would say, man, you are not alone in that. You are absolutely not alone. Here's my struggle, and here's kind of what I'm trying to do. This is what we're trying to create here at this church. And I just want to tell you that if you're here today, and that vision of meaningful community at a church excites you, like right now you're like, yeah, I'm into this, this is good, and you feel your heart beating a couple extra beats a minute, I want to talk to you for a minute. Because six weeks from today, we're going to be kicking off our fall groups launch. It's going to be a huge, huge deal. We're going to be kicking off all sorts of groups here at Grace. You're actually going to start hearing about this starting as soon as next week. But basically, um, what we're going to be doing is, um, we're with all these new groups starting, is we're still looking for some additional hosts and some leaders, some facilitators who will step up. So maybe you're somewhat new to Grace, but you've led other places. Maybe you've been part of groups for a while. You're like, I could never lead. You know, I, don't even, I just got certain questions I've never figured out. And I got parts of the Bible I've never read. Okay, you, all you need is just a passion for authentic community and a willingness to follow Jesus. And we would love to meet with you. So we have a full-time community groups pastor on our staff who shepherds all of our groups and helps us with curriculum and all kinds of cool stuff for group life. And um, he is out in the lobby after the service. We have a community groups table and an area, and he would love to meet you. If you just like to host people, 
if, if you know what, what bad group looks like and good group looks like, we want to we meet you. We want to talk to you. If you have any interest at all, please step forward and be a part of that. And for those of you who you just know leadership or anything in that realm is not your thing right now, um, just be on the lookout. Six weeks, six weeks from today, we're going to be kicking off a whole bunch of awesome group stuff at Grace. All right. Um, one last thought for you, and then we're going to close. And the last thought is this, um, and this thought might be a big stretch for some of you, but for most of you, it won't be. And here it is. If Jesus actually is God, like if Jesus Christ was not just some person or prophet um, or just religious rabbi, but Jesus actually was God in human flesh. Now that might blow your mind if you're just kind of checking things out and exploring Christianity. But if that's true, if Jesus was God, then here's what that means. Jesus coming to this earth, okay, God coming down here, is showing us the absolute best way to live the human life. Would you agree? This is God being like, I'm going to show you the perfect way to live a human life. And what we see Jesus doing is living in authentic community. And we need to take note of that. Jesus could have done it any which way he wanted to. I believe he was God. And he chose to be in deep, meaningful, intentional community. Now, what's fascinating about that is um, what Harvard Research would have to say about the subject of community. So um, there's a book called The Happiness Advantage. It's written by a guy named Sean Acor. Some of you have probably heard of it or read it. Um, I was listening to a podcast with, with Acor, and he was talking about the inspiration for the book and, and all this stuff. Well, turns out this book was born out of 12 years of Harvard research. And uh, one of the, the questions that he sought to answer was, uh, what truly makes people happy? How can you predict people's happiness? And, um, you know, kind of the prevailing thought is, well, shoot, it sure would help. If you lived in a place that didn't have a lot of instability, that had freedom, safety, that you were, were well-to-do, good financial resources, uh, opportunity for different experiences, good educational background. Would we, would we say that? That would probably go a long way to helping people feel happy. Okay, that's what they thought. Um, so what, what they found was that if you know everything about a person's external world, okay, all that stuff we just talked about, that was only a 10% predictor of happiness. Only 10%. So when you travel around the world, as, as Acor did to over 50 different countries, what he found was there were miserable people in all kinds of affluent, wonderful places to live. But he found incredibly happy people, some in affluent places, but many, many in places that you would not believe. So he talked about, uh, he was in Venezuela. And Venezuela, there was all this kidnapping going on. People were being snatched up left and right. And people in this one community he was in were just living in absolute terror of either being kidnapped themselves or friends, family members, children being kidnapped. I mean, it was crazy. He also was in Zimbabwe and uh, meeting with groups of farmers who had lost their land to the government. And they were completely broke. No money, no nothing, no resources, starving. And he said that in those communities, among many others, what he found was people were really, really happy. How is that possible? How is that possible? Well, 
what the research has found is that the number one predictor of long-term happiness is deep social connection. I'm going to say this again just to really let this sink in because it's, it, in some ways is obvious, but in some ways is not. The number one predictor of long-term happiness is deep social connection. And I don't mean Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, okay? Those are great in their own way. But we know that that's not what we're talking about when we talk about deep social connection. We're talking about authentic community where you're investing in other people's lives and they're investing in yours, where you really know the substantive stuff of life that's going on with other people. You're walking together on a journey together. Acor, this was my favorite part. Acor was so convicted by his research. He's traveling all around, you know, working out of Harvard and whatever. He was so convicted that after 12 years, you know what he decided to do? He's like, well, shoot, man, I want to be happy. So he moved into intentional community. He moved from the Northeast to Dallas, Texas to live with his sister and a whole bunch of friends in intentional community because he's like, how can I learn all this stuff and then not live it out? Now, for you Washington Redskins fans, that's just got to blow your mind, right? <laughs> Moving to enemy territory, I mean, one of the most deprived places in the, on the planet. But he would do that and be happy because he was in community. So I'm going to leave you with a very obvious question, but I want you to think about it. Do you have deep, meaningful community in your life? Do you have people that you can be real with? Do you have people that you can share the struggles and the doubts and the questions of this life with? Do you have that? Because you see, here's the thing. If Jesus is God, then that is God showing us the perfect way to live a human life. It's in community. I mean, Harvard's an okay institution. I, I didn't want to go there, so I didn't apply. But um, <laughs> the research now is showing us that's the essence of what it means to live a great life. Do you have it? Do you have it? You either do or you don't. Now, um, what I would just want to encourage you is that, like I said, six weeks from today, we're going to be launching a whole bunch of community groups here at Grace. And these are real places for real people. Okay? Now, I'm not saying you, gotta, you have to do this thing, but what I'm telling you is it's a great resource for you. These are intentionally designed environments to draw you into authentic community with other people as we seek to follow Jesus. Don't, don't have it all figured out yet, but we're trying, okay? We're seeking after God for God's help. So stay, stay tuned for that one. Um, let me just, as, as we're going to close in prayer here, let me just give you a, a warning about the next three Sundays, okay? So the next three Sundays of this Follow Me series, we're going to continue to look at, practically speaking, what it means to follow Jesus. And I um, just want to tell you, these next three Sundays are going to challenge you, and they might stretch you. So if you like a good challenge, get ready. It's going to be good, all right? And if you're here, and maybe you're just kind of taking a look at Christianity, um, and you, you're still making your mind up or whatever, uh, these next three Sundays actually might be the reason why you haven't jumped in. <laughs> because this is some tough stuff here that we're going to look at. But it's good stuff. It's really good stuff. So I encourage you to, uh, to join us next week. So um, 
As we close, just want to remind you guys that um, we have a wonderful prayer team that would love to pray with you if you have anything that you would like prayer for or you know someone who would like some prayer for them. They're right over here on this wall. They'd love to pray with you uh, as we dismiss. And um, we do something called Grace in Five. If you're new here, uh, it happens right over here in that handicapped bay. And uh, I'll be over there and would love to tell you a little bit more about this church in, in about five minutes. And, um, and then finally, if something in this message has stirred something in you, please stop by the lobby. Please stop by the lobby. That is God prompting you in some small way. Please do not ignore it. Stop by the lobby. You'll see the community groups area right by the restrooms. And, um, and you can meet Pastor Brian. And he would love to, to just give you more information. No obligation. But we would just love to connect with you. Okay, let me say a prayer for you. We get out of here. God, we just want to say uh, thank you for um, this incredibly real and raw picture of community. Uh, my, my hope, God, my prayer, is that this will have dispelled some misconceptions of what community looks like within a church. God, help us all to just find places where we can be real with one another about this life and where we can be encouraged and inspired in a journey with you, Jesus. Lord, um, order our next steps. Many of us in this room, um, we, we know inside of us that, that you're tugging on us about some sort of a leadership thing that relates to what's going to be happening in groups at Grace. Um, help us to have the courage to take that step, even if we maybe don't feel qualified to do it. And uh, for the rest of us, God, I pray you'd keep our hearts open just, just keep us open to the prospect of finding community, God. If it was something you were that serious about and it's something that research confirms, God, I just pray you keep us open to it if it's something we're resisting. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Grace Community Church, a church for people who don't go to church, meets on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. in Arlington, Virginia. Connect with us anytime at trygrace.org.